0: This is the sixth section of my presentation of an expanded version of the M.A. thesis that I wrote for my degree in Catholic studies. This expanded version is what I'm calling On Saint Stories and the Self. Previously, we walked through the thought of Adorno, Horkheimer, Charles Taylor, and John Henry Newman, and we've been, begun to discuss the mythoi of St. Francis of Assisi, and it's in him that we will see through his stories and through his way of being, an answer to the, the, uh, what would we call the reification, the relegation of the self in the modern world. It's through understanding St. Francis's uh, ascetic desire, an ascetic hierarchical desire, and an ascetic way of being in the world that allows us to get past what um, our current world has given to us as options for understanding the self. As Sarah Coakley has said, uh, it's only this asceticism that will present a compelling answer to the world. One thing that I didn't expand on in the written and sent off version of my my thesis um, that I turned in was really what I mean by this hierarchic way, the ascetic way. Um, And I'll expand on that a little bit here before we get into those specifics about St. Francis. Really what I'm borrowing uh, um, this thought from is from St. Bonaventure, uh, Franciscan himself, in this same way of thinking as his Holy Father Francis. Um, Really, we understand asceticism through his... um, what we call the classic method of the the three spiritual ways, which is uh, the three steps are the purgative step, uh, the purgation stage, the illuminative stage, and the unitive stage. So purgation, illumination, uh, unitivity. And so purgation is all about what we talked about before. Asceticism can be confused easily with just, as I mentioned in the last recording, like self-flagellation, just somebody beating themselves up and fasting and things like that. And this is maybe a way of describing what people understand the purgative way to be, but it would be a very, very false claim to say that that's only what asceticism is, this purgative part. Purgation is helpful uh, in many ways because it allows for a making room which allows for us to expand and to go up this ladder in contemplation of God. But that's only the first step. So let's not confuse asceticism as only being the purgative stage. So the next step then, the second step, is the illuminative stage, wherein our foolish hearts that were darkened are able to better understand the realities of God. And at this point, we begin to experience more and participate in God. Finally, the third and final stage is the unitive stage in which we become one with God. We get as close as we can to understanding the nature and being and will and person of God. And it's in there that we find asceticism really take root, and that's really what asceticism is. It's the process of going through these three stages, and it is getting through these three stages and and the contemplation of those things, the unitive stage in which one aligns their will with God and becomes really what God has designed them to be. They, They begin to mimic our Lord in all these different ways. So, for instance, St. Francis, this is most clearly seen when he receives the stigmata, the wounds of, uh, of Christ when he was crucified on his own body. So he's so united. There is this deep unitivity with uh, he and, and, and Christ that he begins to actually look like Christ in that way. He has those wounds. It's as if he was crucified as well. The other uh, concept that we want to take from uh, St. Bonaventure is this idea of this the hierarchical way. And I want to just summarize that thought, because again, this isn't just the entire focus of what we'll be talking about here with St. Francis. But I just wanted to read a little bit from the introduction of Bonaventure's Journey of the Mind to God. Um, And this introduction summarizes the six-fold way, the six-storied mountain, Um, and this is an introduction by Stephen F. Brown. He summarizes all six uh, parts of this hierarchic way, these hierarchical actions uh, here. So he says, uh, and actually this, (laughs) just to clarify, um, this summary is a summary from Richard of St. Victor in his book called The Mystical Ark, which... Is what Bonaventure expands upon for his journey, the journey of the mind to God. But this summary works pretty well for the journey as well, um, the itinerarium. So here's how we might uh, refer to it. The first step is the spontaneous encounter with external things and wonder uh, what they beget, and the wonder that they beget. The second part is when this passes on to our way of ordering the knowledge that we have. The third part is this first rational stage where it is attached to our imagination. Our imaginary begins to include these kinds of things. The fourth step is when we reason our we apply things to our reasoning uh, using these kinds of experiences. It becomes a part of our mental calculus. We take it in as a part of our rational reality. The fifth stage is contemplative, and it rises above and beyond reason, not against reason, not in contradistinction, uh, distinction to reason, but above it, meta-reasoning, metaphysics. The sixth step is when one climbs to the top of this ladder and deals, as it says here, uh, mostly with the triune god. So again, this is where we see the final stage, the unitivity, take place. So that's really what it means when I'm talking about when I'm talking about uh, asceticism in this hierarchic way. We're bar- borrowing from uh, this Franciscan Bonaventurian uh, theology to kind of to talk about these things. But I think that gets us most of the way there to start. Let's now talk about St. Francis. As I mentioned, the analogs to the problems that we see in the modern world, environmental care, interpersonal relationships, the workplace, and just human work in general, can find their unitive and hierarchic ends in St. Francis' example. So let's first start off by talking about things being fulfilled by St. Francis's reordering uh, of, higher, uh, of ascetic desire. So St. Francis demonstrates an eschatological, or utopic, or beatific vision and image of humankind by making room to revel in totally enveloping, yet non-coercive relationships with non-divided others. That is, by interacting with others as if he and they were together in Trinitarian permeated relationships, unbound by the constraints of fallen or sinful natures. And that's really what I mean by talking about the ultimate fulfillment of a humanistic or secular utopia, something that is beatific. And the language that I'm using there is language that will will be more fully explained later, but just, again, think about what I'm saying here as describing the beatific vision being in totally enveloping yet non-coercive relationships with non-divided others, as if he and they were together in Trinitarian permeated relationships, unbound by the constraints of fallen or sinful states. That's an important definition. That's why I'm saying it twice. Uh, Brother Thomas of Cholano recounts the culture of wealthy 13th century men with characterizations that may have described the young Francis as well. Quote, flowing on the tide of every kind of debauchery, Since they are permitted permitted to fulfill everything they desire, they surrender themselves with all their energy to outrageous conduct. So let's take note of what he's talking about here. There is this desire that Brother Thomas is, is recounting to us, and he also talks about them surrendering themselves with all of their energy. So we're back to this kind of sacrificial language. They're putting themselves on the altar. They're giving up all of themselves to their their passions and their debauchery. But but like St. Paul, St. Francis did not settle down after undergoing a miraculous conversion experience. St. Francis continued to desire and surrender himself with all his energy to the holy ascetic uh, way of being in in his way of life. So with the same determination and zeal, his energy and desires were destined to be surrendered to Christ, to be sacrificed to Christ, his Redeemer. It can be difficult when we talk in these mythic terms to remember the humanity and normalcy of St. Francis. Though he is a heroic figure, he provides inspiration precisely because he rose from a deep imperfection into a saintly state. So St. Francis' early life was characterized by a somewhat libertine desire for chivalric fame and prosperity, but this desire would be transformed into a longing for something greater. During the process of his conversion, a friend asked him if he intended to settle down with a wife in a more steady lifestyle, not going around and rebuilding church buildings and begging for money to, to get materials and begging mo- money for food even. But Francis responded, he said, You have said the truth, for I have thought to take a bride nobler, richer, and more fair than you ever saw. What is he talking about here? Let's, let's continue. Brother Salambene, following in the footsteps of his patron, gave up his family's lineage by entering religious orders along with his other brothers, saying that they, quote, destroyed our house in the male and female line so that we might build it up again in heaven. So what Salambene and St. Francis are doing is they're flipping around these expectations on their head. And he's actually, they're both kind of engaging in, a, in this fundamental yes saying, right? From, from Taylor, um, somebody asks Francis, are you going to settle down and get married? And Francis is like, I've found someone. I know who I'm, who I'm incredibly attracted to and who I want to give my life to. Now, of course, St. Francis was a celibate mendicant, <laughs> but who he has given his life to is Lady Poverty, Salimbeni in a similar way. You know, he wanted to have, um, obviously in that time and in our time as well, but even more so then when you having a large family was needed just to survive. You had help around a farm and things like that, a lineage, a legacy. But Salambani is saying he has given up treasures on earth for treasures in heaven. He might not have a, a physical filial lineage, but he will have a spiritual one. Each of these responses from these two Franciscans indicate something more than a very basic invest now, benefit later attitude. Certainly, these two mendicants had the right to marry, as it were, before they gave their lives uh, to, to their vows, but this libertine impulse was arrested by the desire for greater things. It wasn't as if they gave up their desires. It wasn't as if Francis gave up his desire to love his lady, Lady Poverty. No, the love for that lady was still there. St. Francis' example provided the church with both the pattern of purity alongside dogma and doctrine. And again, because they're flipping this thing on, it, on its head, what they're doing is, is, is they're almost hard to pin down. What they're doing, and I think back to Cochley, this is that kind of compelling narrative that can be given to the wider world. I mean, he was a man for whom it was said that quote, "His body was so much in harmony with his spirit." and so ready to obey it that when he strove to attain complete holiness, his body not only did not resist, but even tried to run ahead, and for whom also it was said that his humility was easier to admire than to imitate. So clearly he could outdo the Albigensians or whoever in terms of purity, but he strove past them in following tradition and teaching, this well-ordered world, the quinonia. He listened to the words of priests, just as an example. He listened to the words of priests as if they spoke words from God's own mouth and encouraged those around him to partake of the Eucharist in these canonical and valid illicit forms. So with an understanding of misplaced or misguided desire and with an examination of this hierarchic person, the relation and result between the two culminating with hierarchic desire must be explored. The compelling features of this hierarchic way of being are overlaid to the issues of wrongful desires and interpreted through a realized hierarchical understanding. And again, with this community part of reasoning and with this yes saying uh, as part of the reasoning. So these demonstrations substantiate the claim that St. Francis's example proves to be potentially for us a compelling answer to cultural and ecclesial chaos regarding the self's expression. A self may actually transcend the bounds of current relationships, whether caused by alienation from labor, technology's digital mediation, and even the limits of time and space itself, and become a fireball of loving energy and warmth. I do want to make one point just for the sake of theological clarification regarding St. Francis and appearing. Uh, As a fireball, of course, in the standard Christian teaching about the eschatological state, uh, in heavenly bliss, people will not be interacting with one another as disembodied energies. So it must be understood that the apparition of Francis uh, as a fireball here in this story is really a prototype of eschatological human relationships uninhibited by current mortal limitations. And so just just to make that clear, the fireball is in some analogical way achievable both now in, and in the world to come. And St. Francis proves this to be the case. So traversing from this young partier to the founder of a religious order, his soul work towards spiritual sustenance with other people allowed him to encounter a glimpse of fulfilled, embodied human reality through a deeply transpersonal means. So St. Francis's deep desire for nearness with his religious brothers characterized the essence of his life, right? So he cared more about communal prayer than basically anything else going on in his world. Um, But eventually, at at one point, he is carried away somewhere else for ecclesiastical business. So he has to, on one occasion, spend the night far away from his, his friars. However, on this evening, something like a fireball riding a fiery chariot enters into the living area where the brothers were either praying or sleeping. Though they were confused, the Franciscans concluded that, quote, thanks to the gift of his outstanding purity and his deep concern for his sons, the Lord allowed Francis, who must have missed them dearly, to, to be brought near in some sense, even though he was physically far away two things must be considered about this incredible incident. First, that the saint's desire desire to be with his brothers was so strong that a marvel was allowed, permitted to take place, in spite of unconventional means, by location. Second, that his love and care took on an intelligible and visible form, one which the biblical Elijah or apostles would have recognized, um, which was able to be explained and understood by the Franciscans as a miraculous apparition of their patron. And just, just for example, if you're looking in Scripture, 2 Kings 2 and Acts 2, uh, to, to, for this idea of, of this sort of fiery heavenly uh, scene, there's a connection that must be made here. St. Francis's desire for his community and the allowance of a supernatural recommuning was certainly miraculous, but it wasn't unheard of in the transformation of the human person. Like I mentioned, this this scene is familiar to those who, who are familiar with biblical stories. But, but it is miraculous, of course, right? As much as Saint Francis desired to be with his brothers, um, such a thing is not, again, common at all. So in one sense, we are familiar with the story, but the fact that these things actually happen, it, it's, it's few and far between. At the same time, this idea of, of human closeness, of interpersonal closeness is the intended result, uh, the intended end for, for humankind. As much as Francis would have desired to be with his brothers, such a deep and pure wish is really echoed by the Christian God's desire for totally unified yet non-commandeering human relationships. It's interesting that Francis is brought to his brothers. They aren't carried away to be with him. This kind of perfected relationship for which Francis stands as a prototype takes its shape in the beatific vision. This is a spoiler. This is a, 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 a glance, a quick glance that we as human beings are allowed to see. To understand St. Francis as a forebear of these restored relationships, One must consider the premises of the Christian mythos, which speak to the end, or telos of selves. From the Christian narrative, it is understood that it was not good for one person, Adam, to be alone, and a partner was created to work alongside him and to further reflect the triune reality of the interpersonal God. This establishes the inherent goodness of selves in community sharing experiences, and familial relations, also mimicking the subcreative work of the creator God. However, even the goodness of the prelapsarian state was lacking in that there were aspects of life in the garden that would not reflect life on the new earth, the beatific end. Obviously, there are some examples of the, the placement of the, the trees in the garden versus the placement of trees in the, the new heavens and new earth. Um, obviously, the new, the new earth has the, has the presence of a incarnate Christ. And in particular, for this, um, this episode that we're talking about, something related to, to interpersonal relationships, and we've mentioned because of Coakley the concept of sexuality, one key interpersonal difference worth noting in the perfective state perfected state versus that of Eden, is that humankind will, quote, ne- neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, according to Christ in Matthew tw- uh, chapter 22. So as a deacon and a religious brother, all of the things the saint wrote and acted upon take place within the context of voluntary celibacy. Therefore, this demonstrates and de- a, a, a decryal against worldviews built upon the acceptance of terrible things like rape culture, um, pickup artist manipulators, all of the things that Me Too is against. But it also calls as, as and as much as many of us might appreciate that St. Francis's worldview here calls into question those things. He also calls into question things that we might be more, uh, we might find more acceptance in, including things like sexual promiscuity and hookup culture. We can't just take one and and leave the other. Uh, St. Francis's life um, is a critique against both of these aspects of of a liberal uh, ethic in this regard. Worldviews based on either side of this give the impression that one is incomplete. They are an incomplete self, apart from some sort of sexual conduct with another person. But... St. Francis falls into a long line of celibate individuals, including Christ himself, the Apostle Paul, and single saints throughout all the centuries, who find their total actualization paradoxically. Here's what we mean to say. It is an almost universal truth that St. Francis is beloved by many, even within secular institutions. However, if one is to see Francis's action, that is to say, what he had done to reform the world, they cannot then see the action as disconnected from his vision. As I mentioned, this is a reversal of the modern problem. We have vision without action. We have to admit that St. Francis' action was helpful and useful, and it caused good in the world. But what we cannot do is sever his action, which again is undeniable, from his vision. And this is where St. Francis gives gives many moderns, uh, brings them up against a dilemma, right? If we can't deny empirically, naturalistically, his positive effect on the world, we cannot deny that which inspired him to take that action. Celibacy was a default yet committed state for St. Francis. And his life bore out the actions of one who subjected and committed himself to self-discipline for the sake of others. He fasted regularly. He prayed the hours. He went without sleep for days, all to center his mind on Christ. That is interpersonal connection. This training in obedience opens the door for greater-than-this-world participation with others. In fact, the saint says that, quote, the person who offers himself totally to obedience loses his body. And again, not in this sort of dualistic sense, but, but loses, uh, using it as a synecdoche, the body, the parts of us that, that draw us down, the parts of us that we might say are of a lower nature. We Those things can be subsumed in anticipation. A- in in anticipation, that's hard to say, of a heavenly body that will be not drawn away by abuses of other people and a desire for control and putting others down. I mean, think about this. Even the best relationships may stumble into violences of some kind. We're not just talking here about some sort of spousal abuse, but but we're talking about any sort of desire that seeks command over another in, in an inordinate way. Even a couple married for decades in true love may still experience unfounded and unfair jealousy or uh, inappropriate desire for someone who is not their spouse in a loving, committed relationship. Jealousy is a violence, an overabundance of prudence, in that it deliberately acts out of a place of distrust or a lack of stability, responding to stimuli in such a way to purposefully damage non-threatening interpersonal relationships. Lustful desire for another, a concupiscence, is misplaced desire for closeness and community, finding its end not in mutual agape but in controlling pornea. The desire for closeness is unresolvable, apart even from good or innocent intentions for right relationships. The daily demands of life and vocation re- require, or, or, I mean, <laughs> cause, I guess, a cutting off, a means of violence of opportunities to pursue close, tight-knit relationships, except, except for a handful of, of, you know, a small handful of very close relationships, right? The, the way that the world is means that we don't have time or energy for others. So, so even, even if we have the best of intentions, busy seasons in life cause interaction, even within our inner circles to be limited, or maybe even impossible, we can't get as close as we want in this world. Let's continue talking about this, this struggle that we come up against. I mean, me too is certainly one thing, but, but just the, and that's a solvable problem from people who need to get their, their vices in order. But just the fact that we live in this, in this world where we have to work long hours and we are often alienated from others, it, it's impossible almost seemingly to have close relationships with other people. Uh, Pope St. Paul VI, in regards to the celibacy of the Roman Catholic Church's Latin Rite ministers, uh, for the majority of them, regards that such an option is not a burden, a burdensome requirement, but is, quote, a happy and easy sacrifice. <laughs> Clearly, a different epistemology of what is happy and easy grounds the Pope's statements. These words could be compared to some critics' views of, say, the Roman Church's uh, views of celibacy um, as as an example of a badness of fit uh, regarding anybody's uh, quote-unquote loneliness to be alone. And they often point back, uh, and this seems to be a fair exegesis, of Adam's loneliness in the garden. Some point out that only only an intimate partner, and not a Cenobitic relationship, a monastic community, was able to fulfill Adam's need for connection. But this, however, is one aspect of how a misshapen libertine ethic may be seen. In this case, the libertinism exists between the right to have Uh, a closeness as found in a sexual partner out of a misguided desire for intimacy versus a submission to a different kind of connection to others out of a right sense of agape. This is a critique certainly worth examining, but St. Francis's life proves the counterfactual. First, a marriage relationship or some kind of close uh, physical relationship is not needed for a fulfilled human experience, that is, a hierarchical experience. In fact, the basis of Adam and Eve's relationship led them both together into a broken union of sin, pain, and death. However, the hierarchical person is able to achieve completeness with others in a way Adam and Eve, even in their Edenic state, were unable St. Francis had a special gift of discernment by which he was able to ascertain the secrets of the hearts of his friars, and a gift of intimacy not uh, given to the Edenic couple. Of course, the, the incarnate Christ had not yet entered the world, and so the hierarchical spiritual process itself was not even made available to Adam and Eve, and therefore Such a comparison between relationships in the garden versus after the cross are spurious at best. Further, the the, the critique that we've been mentioning here uh, about essentially needing a partner to have intimacy and closeness with another um, are often not centered on sexual pleasure, but on connection and intimacy on a whole. However, if one's main goal is to pursue relationships of unadulterated intimacy it seems that asceticism and not these critiques present the optimal opportunity for this to truly take place sure sexual pleasure is certainly a part of within the christian view of romantic marital relationship but <laughs> to prepare one's self for the pleasure of heaven would mean to not get too used to treasures on earth that is to say christians are given a picture of eschatological relationships from Christ himself. And what St. Francis experiences in his mendicantism is more like the joys of the beatific vision than the pleasures of the marriage bed. For all of St. Paul's exhortation on marriage, he summarized his teaching in this way, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Right? Marriage is this very deep, interesting thing. But I'm, when I'm talking about these things, they, they just simply serve as, 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 as um, analogies for Christ and the church. To put it another way, marriage is helpful, a sacrament even, but in terms of the husband and wife union, it merely serves as an arrow pointing heavenwards towards the fulfillment of all human relationships. The Christ who was crucified, buried, and resurrected for his bride for whom he will return again." Several heretical movements and dangerous false teaching, from Catharism to purity culture, have evolved out of a misunderstanding of sexual expression, primarily that intercourse or even a basic awareness of one's self as a sexual being constitutes the very worst kinds of sins. To prevent a hierarchically aimed viewpoint from becoming heretical in this way, we might call it in sort of a fundamentalistic way, and to avoid accusations of self-hatred or repression made against this ascetic claims-celibacy-endorsing conclusion, a response to dualism, therefore, is important. Because the, quote, infinitely higher vocation of celibacy is in fact a vocation, some might claim that, just as some are not called to other vocations, for example, the priesthood, then not everyone should be called to, say, this kind, of radical, uh, this kind of radical attempt towards intimacy with God, which may look like celibacy, joining the Franciscans even. That is to say, for at least those in the Catholic world, just because one is a single male does not mean that they should automatically enter discernment for the priesthood. But this is a little different. The outpourings of asceticism, that is to say, giving up something for a greater thing, is a call that's open to all and isn't based on gender or one's proclivity towards preaching and pastoral care or service of the poor or something like that in particular. Let's let's say, as by way of example, that someone is blessed with incredible senses of taste and smell, and this gift has come to them by genetic means and from training their palate through cooking classes and seminars. Nature and nurture have both played their part. Further, this person, for whatever reason, is part of the illustration, This person lives in a world wherein the greatest good in their society can be undertaken not by royalty or dignitaries or senators, but by those guardians who maintain the office of sommelier. For whatever reason in this fictional world, the the sommelier class have the responsibility of caring for the poor, for serving as state legislators, and being lay representatives to ecclesiastical councils. In this world, virtuous people, Even those who have not trained their senses, or who were not gifted with these senses innately, strive to become like like a, a sommelier because they understand the importance of the role. There are some who may have not picked this role out of enjoyment, but out of duty. Others gladly assume this identity, attending wine tastings every weekend, reading books on viticulture, and enjoying discussions on the differences between French oak and American oak casks. Sexual desire may be related to this illustration in a number of ways. Perhaps not all will feel a call, as it were, to chastity, just as not everyone with a well-developed sense of smell will feel called to recommending food and wine pairings. However, in our fictional world, the end goal of becoming a sommelier presents the opportunity for a greater good, to lead and be led towards a better world, If anything, having a good sense of smell and taste works in one's favor towards this end goal. People who have lives dedicated to chastity, celibate, or otherwise, in comparison, have an advantage that others do not, an intrinsic sense of sexuality, which innately points them towards the greater good, the beatific vision. I mean, one can understand why the Cathars came to be in 13th century Roman Catholic world. Certainly, their clerical criticisms regarding purity of life and conduct were often valid. But these reforms ultimately fell flat, not due to a lack of desire, but because of misplaced desire. Again, obviously appearing in this libertine sense, in the sense of dualism. This situation is not dissimilar today From today's rickety and rocky conversations regarding purity and chastity and anthropology and all of these things, as I mentioned, Coakley has brought this up. And there have been many pertinent critiques of de facto standards regarding interpersonal relations between sexes, misunderstandings of machoism, uh, egalitarianism and complementarianism, and so forth. However, this critical lens requires the tempering of historic church teaching and requires, again, the the realm of, of myth and not just modern anthropology. What is needed is then a fuller understanding of the eros, one which has an imagination of spiritual ecstasy, spiritual procreation, spiritual pregnancy, and can carry out desire in a way that does not do damage to others. Chris Damien uses the example of a toddler who, though rightfully enraptured by the beauty of a flower growing, um, does not have the emotive capacity to enjoy the flower in of itself, but rather, quote, might pluck the flower and try to eat it or crunch it up by mishandling it. Compare this uh, to the right desire, uh, comp- compare this, sorry, uh, compare this right desire, though carried out badly to the wisdom of a gardener who knows how to care for plants. And here's a longer quote from Damien. But someone who has grown and matured, perhaps learned how to garden, or at the very least, learned how to give basic care to a flower, will see the beautiful flower in the field and stop, just like the toddler. But unlike the toddler, he'll pick it up carefully so that the petals are preserved. He will bring it home and water it, Or, recognizing that it will live longer in its natural place, he may leave it there, return to it, and bring it water during the dry seasons. This demonstrates the growth of an organic desire. Timeless eternity overcomes the barriers of human limitations regarding perfect interpersonal communion perfected persons absent from jealousy and lust, no longer bound by the limitations of busyness or even even physical separation. St. Francis proves this. St. Francis's fiery appearance to his friends breaks this world's rules of time and space, overcoming the disruption of distance and missed opportunity by sheer force of brotherly love and ascetic purity. Only divine intervention provides opportunity for the imperfections of interpersonal relationships to be overcome, whether through miraculous glowing chariots or through the final consummation of all things. Christians struggling with the inevitable brokenness of the world and culture's uh, problem of violence, selfishness, um, and overabundance of sexuality may look to this pinnacle of Saint Francis who embodies a pre-beatific icon of perfected union with others painting a picture of the triune relationship and the eventual, eventual relational possibilities of the eschaton. Right, so we've, we've talked about this first illustration of St. Francis uh, bilocating and appearing as a fireball. Let's now talk about the illustration, the second illustration that we've brought up the idea of saint francis demonstrating these ascetic hierarchic narratives in the story of how he sees or how he has a vision and then receives the stigmata okay then saint francis is the icon of the longed for utopic self because of his miraculous freedom to relate which came through purposeful sacrifice and spiritual sanctification the process of escasis second to put it another way St. Francis serves as an icon of a proto-perfected human, that is, one who has already achieved the fulfilled end of eschatology by relating to others as if they were already together in future perfection now thereby imitating the Christian trinity, and thereby provides self with an aspirational example by which interpersonal relationships may be directed towards the telos of a new heaven and a new earth, totally and completely set apart from the ropes and wax of violence and dominance. With mythological beatitude in mind, not merely objectivist utopia, St. Francis enables a Christian imaginary towards relationships through outstanding purity and deep concern for one another. An important aspect of St. Francis's view of the eschatological person has to do with his belief in eschatology linked through and to the incarnated person of Jesus Christ. Because incarnation— enfleshment into a human body, uh, into space and time, human beings are able to be reversed subsumed into a plane of existence which is more like the Christian God's existence in the process of theosis. This is possible because human beings do not have as an ideal a certain set of political values or contemporary ethics, but because they are destined to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, who did through his transcendent love, become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. It's a famous quote from Irenaeus of Lyon. This is because Jesus is a person, not a conclusion to a syllogism, according to Thomas Joseph White. This process is completed or realized in the eschaton. So put very briefly, the hierarchic person is one whose being is centered around the very first being from whom beginning, from whom all enlightenment flows, and who fulfills a contemplative, evangelistic, and penitential calling. That's just a quote from Bonaventure's Journey of the Mind to God. In the introduction of Bonaventure's Life of St. Francis, he makes use of analogical language. Drawing typological comparisons between several mendicant like biblical characters, including Elijah and John the Baptist. Francis is hierarchic in the sense that his apocalyptic prophetic message functions as, quote, light for believers to prepare for the Lord away. There is also a second authoritative sense which describes St. Francis as holding a hierarchical position or office as an official messenger an angelos of penance and peace within the soteriological and evangelistic order of the church, that is, the salvific, redemptive movement of the church towards the eschaton. With this prophetic or messengerial or angelic theme in mind, Bonaventure connects St. Francis's life with a divinely given angelic ministry, which includes the internal flame and responsibility of a seraphim. Hierarchic, as a discrete term in of itself, is thick with meaning— Primarily because it refers to this um, this ascetic mode and also because it directly, uh, in a very specific way, refers to a miraculous vision that St. Francis was given, wherein he saw a sixth-winged seraph who was depicted in, in this vision as crucified, and it affixed the mendicant with a comforting gaze. And immediately following this apparition, St. Francis was struck by the stigmata, the external and inaugural sign of his office as a hierarchic person. The central theme of eschatological transformation is the realignment of all creation to the creative being and perichoresis of the Trinity. St. Paul states that in Christ, all things were spoken into existence by the divine Logos, through him and for him. He is the preeminent before all things. He enables all all things through akenosis and apokatastasis all things would be reconciled to himself from this view christ is the energy the creative force and the gravity of the universe his desire is for the reconciliation of all matter and will this will be accomplished as promised by the one seated on the throne outside of time behold i am making all things new. Making, present, indicative, active, present, active, indicative, all things new. The end is already established. All of creation is simply simmering, anticipating the moment when all things will bubble over into the realized reality. Personal responsibility is not acquiesced during the present preparation of the consummation of time, place, matter, and being this new creation that the Trinity is unfolding, is one into which self-participation is invited. From this already-but-not-yet view of eschatology, St. Francis's role is clearly visible. While the earth labors in expectation for when the lion will lie down with the lamb, St. Francis, on pre-perfected earth, exhorts animals and inanimate beings, uh, or things, I guess, as one might in the new earth. In spite of the violence and conquest of the Crusades, St. Francis gives sermons to safes and sultans, preaching peace before peace will be fully and finally realized. Francis' discourse is a drawing together of conflictual things into his saintly self, prefiguring the image of the returning Christ who, says, who said the kingdom of heaven is at hand but just before healing the blind and paralyzed in expectation of his second return the eschatological restoration further the eschaton traditionally speaking is an event shrouded in mystery until the until the apocalypse which related to the theme of the beginning of modern societies seeking out the utopic perfected vision of the world however from saint francis's framework true apocalypse true eschatology the kinds which lead to world-changing reform, requires the unveiling and revealing of God's self, who can be seen as an image in the icon of his servants. Hart states that the current state of nature can be summarized simply as violent totality, but is eventually completely overcome by the infinity of God's peace. This kind of myth, therefore, then, has infinite bounds and would, therefore, at some point, intersect with human selves and human hearts. There is something more real to this, more real to St. Francis's life, knowing that his is an image of a completed person and not just one who is complete in the sense that we might see someone who gives a TED Talk or is a cultural icon on the front of time or is a philanthropist or something like that. Rather, his... his His completeness is tied to a particular understanding of a completed completed human person, the capabilities of which are indescribable on this plane of existence. This more real yet unable to be described self admits a world deeper with meaning than can be described by current limited vocabulary. This is where the language of myth must then return. It is because the unreal elements of myth lack the constraints of this current reality and may therefore map onto future eschatological realities, which, since they represent true human completion, are more grounded in actualized reality than our current one is to ourselves. Therefore, mythological talk is grounded in something much more real than we can hope to describe now. Because how we describe things, uh, this way of description is locked onto a testable and scientific framework, we are limited by the terms of those particular systems. But at the same time, the things, even if we aren't bound by those constrictive things, we still lack the full means to describe what perfection looks like. But the hierarchic person, they must travel, or the person wanting to be hierarchic, they must travel upwards from a place of unenlightenment into light to perceive God through his unified expression by means of submission, journeying, and rejoicing, this threefold path of asceticism. Each movement in this spiritual journey is ensconced within the hierarchy, gradation, or ladder, or ordinarily organized numerical set. Because the nature of this journey is progressive, it is understood that one will not immediately be able to comprehend God as a proficient Franciscan would, or as St. Francis did. However, the imagination-extending example of this hierarchic person is an icon upon which Christians may base their own desires and actions."